pray all those things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, well, you can be seated. Good morning and welcome to Center Church and happy New Year's Eve, happy New Year's Eve. It is New Year's Eve. Uh, How many New Year's Eve fans do we have in the house? Like you are staying up until midnight, you're watching the ball drop. Okay, we got some over here. How many of you are like, forget that, I'm going to bed at 9 p.m.? Okay, yeah, that's my kind of crowd. I will be dead asleep by 10 o'clock. That is uh, guaranteed. Well, again, welcome to Center Church. My name is Zach, and I'm on staff here if we haven't met. And uh, to my fellow parents of young children, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you without Center Kids this morning as you attempt to pay attention to me uh, undivided for the next 30 minutes or so. Uh, Since we have a family-friendly service this morning, I thought it would be fun to start off with a little science lesson, all right? A little science lesson. Who's excited for a little science lesson? Um, I do need to temper your expectations a little bit, though, seeing as how I may or may not have gotten a one on my AP biology exam in high school. So with that in mind, who here has heard of the blue-ringed octopus? Anybody? Okay, a couple people. Wow. Um, I have never heard of that before this week, and I stumbled upon it. So the blue-ringed octopus is native to the Pacific Ocean and can be found in coral reefs hiding uh, in you know, crevices or shells or marine debris. And it's marked, as you can see, by its pretty blue rings and its small size, making it seem like it would be the perfect addition to your fish tank at home. However, however, the thing you need to know, you know, the next time you probably find yourself snorkeling in the Pacific Ocean or something like that and actually come across one of these uh, rare beauties is that they produce a potent neurotoxin that I'm not gonna try and pronounce right now that, get this, is 1,000 times more powerful than cyanide. Now, if you have no idea what cyanide is, then let me put it like this. One little bite from this seemingly harmless creature has enough venom to take out 26 human beings. Once bitten, the venom blocks nerve signals throughout the body, causing muscle numbness. Other symptoms include nausea, vision loss or blindness, loss of senses, and loss of motor skills, ultimately leaving its victim uh, having muscle paralysis, leading to suffocation and respiratory arrest, which probably at this point brings up a couple questions in your mind. Number one, why does he have one on his hand? And number two, why in the world am I even talking about this and telling you about this right now in church? Well, the reason is because the bite of a blue-ringed octopus is initially painless, which means that this incredibly potent venom can enter your body and start destroying you without you even noticing. And in the passage that we're gonna look at together this morning, Jesus is gonna tell a story or, or a parable to warn us of something similar, right? Not a neurotoxin per se, but a, but a mindset, a way of viewing God and a way of viewing ourselves that is small and seemingly unnoticeable, but if left unchecked, will rob you of joy and completely destroy your relationship with God and other people. Let's look at it together. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses one through 16. This is Matthew chapter 20, verse one. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So we have a master of a house who owns a vineyard. Now, I don't know how his vineyard compared to you know, any of the 7,000 vineyards in and around Charlottesville, but if it was anything close, we can probably assume that this was a pretty wealthy guy. 
And the text tells us that he goes out in the morning uh, around probably 6 a.m. to hire day laborers to work in his vineyard. Now, we don't see this uh, a ton anymore today, particularly in Western society, but back then, there were people called uh, day laborers. They were people who didn't specialize in kind of a particular job, but they had to kind of go to a marketplace each morning and hope that someone would come and hire them so that they could make some money and provide for their families. And there's a, an important detail that needs to be pointed out here, um, and, and it's that these laborers wanted to negotiate a contract. If you look back at the verse, you can see that they wanted to negotiate a contract to make sure they were paid fairly. They wanted to earn what they deserved. So they do some negotiating, and the master agrees with them for one denarius a day, which back then was, was standard and fair. Uh, it was normal pay for normal work. Verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And, and to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too. In whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again uh, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. So having uh, already gone to the marketplace once at 6 a.m., he goes back at 9, 12, and 3 to hire more laborers. And the thing really to note here is that it was relatively uncommon for a master to continue to go back and forth to the marketplace. Like, why not just go once in the morning and get all you need for the rest of the day, right? It's just inefficient uh, to constantly go back and forth to which all of the type A people in the room say yes and amen. Efficiency is terrible. Inefficiency. Um, inefficiency, is good. efficiency is good if you're type A. Um, also, we know notice that he doesn't enter into a contract with these, uh, with these laborers, right? He just says, uh, whatever is right, I will give you. With the first, uh, they agreed on a denarius a day, but these, uh, he told them whatever is right, he would give them, which shows us, I think, a couple things about the laborers. The first is that they were desperate, right? They had kind of already lost part of the day that they could have been working and earning some money. They were desperate to get to work so that they could have something, have some money to buy some food so that they could feed their families. But the second thing that we see is that they were dependent. They were a little bit dependent, right? They had no idea. At the end of the day, they had no idea what they were actually going to be paid, right? They had to trust that the master really would come through according to his word and pay them what was right like he promised that he would. So what we see at this point, just to kind of summarize, is we see a, a contrast between the, the laborers who were hired at 6 a.m. and those who were hired throughout the rest of the day, right? The first wanted to make sure that they earned what they deserved, and the rest were, just had to trust the master. They had to trust that he would pay them what was right. They were dependent. Look at what the master does next, verse 6. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. All right, so for the fifth time, all right, for the fifth time, he goes back to the marketplace to hire laborers. And not only that, he goes back at, at the 11th hour, which back then was about 5 p.m., right? Then the workday ended at 6 p.m. There's an hour left in the workday, which brings up the question, why in the world did he do that, right? Why did he go back when there's only one hour left in the day to hire more people? I think that the reason that we see is, is really that this master, he, he wasn't motivated by efficiency or productivity, but simply by compassion and generosity, right? He didn't need the laborers, he just wanted to have them, right? Because there was an hour left in the day, right? After having already gone out four times, I doubt he really needed more people, right? I doubt for them that there was a lot of, of work that they were gonna really do that was gonna benefit him. 
right? The master probably didn't need the laborers, but we see that the laborers needed a master, and so he goes and he hires them, right? This master isn't motivated, this is so important, isn't motivated by efficiency or productivity, but by compassion and great generosity. Verse eight, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. All right, it's payday. All right, everybody's favorite time of the month, it's payday. The end of the day has come and the master chooses, it's interesting, he chooses to pay the laborers in reverse order, right? Paying those who were hired last first and those who were hired first last. And so the ones who were hired at 5 p.m., they come to receive their wages and they each receive a denarius, all right, so I know, I know it's kind of hard probably to put yourself in the shoes of a day laborer who's depending on work and money to provide for his family that specific day, but just try and imagine yourself, put yourself in that person's shoes. A day laborer, man, needing work in order to eat and provide for your family. And it's 5 p.m., all right, and, and, and you're at the marketplace. Uh, the day is almost over. You're about to walk home to your family with nothing, right? You, you've got nothing for them, but somebody comes and, and they offer work. And so, man, you, you see that it's 5 p.m and it's just for an hour, but you're so needy and you're so desperate that you agree to go just hoping, right? Hoping that you can have a few cents if it's gonna buy you, you know, a loaf of bread or something to take home to your family. But the end of the day comes, you work for one hour, the end of the day comes and you receive your wages and you get paid for a full day's work. Right, you work for one hour and you get paid for 12. Over 90% of the money that you receive is completely and utterly unearned and undeserved. Right? You, you are a recipient of incredible grace and generosity. And so the, the laborers who are hired at 6 a.m., you know, they're kind of looking down the line a little bit and they see, they kind of like see this happening. They see these guys who work for one hour get paid a denarius and think, man, if that's what they got, like just imagine what we're gonna get. You know, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like uh, you know when you pull the card out of the mail um, from grandma and it kind of has a little weight to it, you know, and that kind of feeling of anticipation or expectation, you know, starts to build a little bit, right? But look at what happens. Look at what happens. Verse ten. Now, when those hired first came, they thought, right? They thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Right, so if you're anything like me, you hear this or you read it or whatever, your initial reaction to it is probably, that's not fair. All right, that's not fair. We read this and we naturally identify with the guys who are grumbling at the master. They worked longer and harder. How is it fair that those who worked way less than them get paid the same amount as them, right? It seems unfair, but look at what the master says to them. Verse 13, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. So the, the master kind of gently you know, calls him friend. He kind of gently responds and basically says, you wanted a contract and I upheld the contract, right? You insisted on getting what you deserved and you did. 
right? There's no injustice or unfairness on my part. There was no breach of justice, right? I am a generous master, and I just love to be generous to those who trust and depend on me. Right, and so end of parable. And by, by this point, you know, you've probably realized uh, that the, the master in the parable ultimately represents God. And it, it's easy to kind of get to the end of the parable, right, and, and want to, to play judge or play referee kind of on the, the, the justice and the fairness of God, right? We love to do that. We love to kind of survey the landscape and try to pick apart and figure out why does, you know, they get that or, or why does God do this that way, right? We love to, to, to referee kind of the justice and fairness of God. But here, guys, here's what we have to understand. This is so important. That Jesus didn't tell this parable primarily to provide parameters or instructions on the justice and fairness of God, right? Jesus told this parable to warn us of the danger, man, the danger of trying to earn and deserve the blessings of God. Certainly there are things that we can learn and do learn about the character of God in this parable, but the overarching main point, the main point of this parable is it is better to be dependent than deserving. It's better to be dependent than deserving. Right, we all want to be rewarded. I mean, obviously, like we go through life, as we go throughout our lives, we want to experience joy and satisfaction and recognition and blessing and all of these things. And that's, you know, it's especially true around this time of the year in the holidays. And that's not a bad thing. But what this parable teaches us is that it's better, right? As we go throughout our lives, it's better for us to depend on God and his generosity to give us what he sees fit than trying to walk through life, trying to earn and deserve the blessings of God or the blessings of life in our own strength, right? And when we, when we look through this passage and really when we survey the, the scope of the Bible uh, as a whole, we see a few reasons as to why that's true. Number one, we aren't good people who deserve good things, I mean, it's an unpopular and, and almost offensive thing to say, but according to the Bible, you and I are, are not good people on God's team who occasionally slip up, right? According to the Bible, we are sinners by nature and choice, and though it's hard to admit and it's unpopular, deep down, I think we all know that it's true, right? When we take a second and really think and kind of sit with ourselves, right, a couple different things testify to the fact that we have, are sinners who have rejected God. When we look when we look at the scope of human history, when we think about the brokenness that exists in our world, and even when we sit with our own consciences, all those things testify to the fact that something is not right and something is, things are not okay how they are and it's us. We're the ones who have sinned and rejected God. And according to Romans 6.23 is just one place that says that the wages of our sin, right? What we earn, the, the payment for our sin, what we've earned, what we deserve because of that sin is the wrath of God. Right, what we deserve is an eternity apart from him and no amount of good things that we can do could ever make up for that, could ever earn our way out of that. Right, which ultimately, it, it just kind of shows us that we don't, we don't really want to play the deservedness game with God. That's the first reason that it's better to be dependent than deserving is because we aren't good people who deserve good things. But the second reason, man, the second reason that it's so much better to live like that is because we have an unbelievably generous and gracious heavenly father who loves to pour out blessings on his children who trust him. 
right? Just think with me for a minute on the character of God. Throughout, man, the Bible, some of the most common descriptions of the character of God, specifically in the Old Testament, are the fact that he is merciful and gracious. That phrase, you'll read it over and over again, the Lord, the Lord, he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see that throughout the whole Old Testament. And that communicates, particularly those two words of mercy and grace, communicate that God not only withholds what we deserve, but he actually gives us infinitely more than we could ever deserve, right? Those words, they kind of seem like they're communicating the same thing, and sometimes it's hard to know the difference between them. But think with me, the mercy of God is him withholding what we deserve, and the grace of God is him lavishing us with good that we could never earn or that we could never deserve. Do we have any Les Mis fans in the house? Les Mis, all right, we've got some whoops. Um, for those who haven't, this is a spoiler alert, but you've had about 200 years at this point. So that's, that's, uh, that's kind of on you. So Les Mis um, tells the story of Jean Valjean, a French peasant um, who spent 19 years in prison for stealing uh, and for repeated attempts to escape. Um, but as the story goes, he finally gets out and is starting to kind of look for work and look for shelter, uh, but he, he's having trouble because he's an ex-convict. So he, as he goes... Um, he, he comes to a certain town where a bishop kind of welcomes him in and treats him with just remarkable uh, and amazing hospitality. Uh, just, you know, he, he gives him like food and a, a room for the night and all these different things. But as the story, you know, goes on, Jean Valjean repays this, you know, incredible hospitality by stealing from the man. He steals, you know, some of the silver in his house. And so, you know, he, he kind of flees and he tries to escape and he kind of tries to get out of Dodge. But as typically happens, like the police ultimately find him and arrest him and kind of bring him back to the bishop. And so it sort of sets up this picture where you're like, okay, he's coming back and the bishop's about to you know, be like, what the heck, man? And like bring the gavel down and kind of send the man away, give him what, we, what he deserves and send him back to prison, but he doesn't, right? He doesn't do what you think he's gonna do. He doesn't give him what, does, what he deserves. And what's more, he looks at Jean Valjean dead in the face and says, I'm so glad that the police found you because you left without these candlesticks, which are worth more than 200 francs, right? The bishop, or Jean Valjean was deserving he was deserving of condemnation, yet the bishop repaid him with mercy and with grace. And guys, that is exactly how God deals with us. Not only does he withhold the wrath that we are due, he pours that out on Christ instead of us and blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Man, it is better to be dependent than deserving, not only because we don't deserve good things, but because we have a merciful and gracious and generous heavenly father. And here's the turn. Right, here's the turn, when we understand that, when God opens our eyes to that reality, when we deeply have a rock solid grip on what we've deserved and then what we've received in Christ, man, it should fill us with both trust in God and thankfulness to God. Trust and thankfulness, trust. The gospel should fill us with trust because the solid logic of heaven, right? The solid logic is that if God didn't withhold Christ from us, neither will he withhold anything else that he thinks is good for us. And it should also fill us with thankfulness, right? With gratitude. We should be, Christians should be the most grateful people on planet earth because God has repaid our uh, rebellion with reconciliation through the blood of Jesus, Man, that's amazing. We should be people who are constantly just breathtaking and wowed by the generosity of God and walk through life, man, with God-centered gratitude in any and every circumstance. People who constantly say, man, why me? Like, God, why do you love me? Why, why would you send Jesus to die for me? Why would you welcome me into your family? 
Man, I can't believe that God would give me man, breath in my lungs today to, to live and to have the things that I have and to honor him because I was a child of wrath, but now I'm a son or daughter man, of the king of kings. And that's gratitude. That, that, that's gratitude and that's what the gospel should produce in us. It reminds me of a story I heard once of a pastor who was interacting uh, with an 80-year-old pastor at a hospital visit as he was interacting with an 80-year-old man who's a member of his church who was on his way out, uh, as we say in a family-friendly service. Uh, So, you know, the most uh, unfiltered and honest thoughts that you would get get from someone are thoughts that come on on somebody's deathbed. And so the pastor, you know, trying to get some of that, just started to kind of ask him some questions. And as he did, he was just shocked by the responses that he was hearing from this man. You know, he, he said things like, I'm so grateful that I got to be married. And the pastor was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, he didn't, he didn't get married until his late 40s. And then the man said, oh, I'm, I'm so grateful that we were able just to have one kid. And the, and the pastor was th- thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. Like, most, a lot of people want to have, like, lots of kids and lots of grandkids and a big family. And then the man said, I'm so grateful for the 13 years that I had with my wife before she died of cancer. Man, that's not, that's not positivity. That's not just like happy-go-lucky, looking at, at life and its circumstances and its things with a glass-half-full mentality. That's gritty, gospel-fueled gratitude that only comes, that only comes by, by being gripped by the grace and generosity of God. And so the question that, that, we, that this text kind of poses for us is, are we gripped by that? Like, do you overflow with trust in God and thankfulness to God in any or every circumstance? Right, and if you're anything like me, the answer is no. Because most times, you know, you and I are like the 12-hour workers in this parable who are marked more by a spirit of entitlement than trust and thankfulness. Um, a, a lot of times, if, if you're anything like me, sometimes you hear the word entitlement and you kind of think of like the, you know, like the, the 16-year-old girl who's like, Daddy, my Range Rover has 20 miles on it and I got an A in Spanish, so it's time for another one, please. You know, like that's, that's, that's at least what I think about. Uh, but, but in all reality, like entitlement easily slips into all of us. Right, because if gratitude is looking at what God has done and saying, I owe you, entitlement is looking at what I've done and saying, God, you owe me, right? And we all do that. More specifically, there are a couple indicators, a couple kind of dashboard warning lights that we see in this parable that will help us identify where a spirit of entitlement exists in our hearts so that we can root it out and try and replace it with trust, thankfulness, and gratitude. The first is jealousy, Jealousy. The 12-hour workers were jealous, right? They were jealous. Why? Because they compared what they had received to what the rest of the laborers received. And they thought when they did that, when they compared, they thought that they were more deserving, right? They literally say in verse 12, hey, we worked harder. Like we did more. We were out in the sun longer, so we deserve better than them, right? And we've all heard or seen or said something to that effect before. All right, why did he get the promotion instead of me when I've worked harder? Like, why do they always get the recognition and the praise when we serve and we've given twice as much as them? Or, or how is he leading people to Christ when I've shared the gospel 50 more times than him? Right, how were they able to get pregnant when we are 50 times more godly than they are? How did she get married to him when I'm just way better looking and a better person 
<laughs> if we're on, I mean, we're all prone to, to compare and get jealous over the blessings that God has given to other people. And don't hear me, don't hear, don't hear this, don't hear me minimizing the fact that there is oftentimes legitimate sorrow and, and sometimes confusion over, the, why, uh, over the, the way that God works sometimes, right? There just is, that's real. Like more often, often than not, when we, when we try, we just can't trace God's hand. We don't know why he does things the way that he does, but when our sorrow, our, our sorrow turns to envy and jealousy and bitterness, over the blessings that God has given to others that we think we're more deserving of, entitlement is present. And the reason why it's, we're talking about this, the reason why this is so important for us to, as a church and individuals to understand is because the spirit of entitlement and jealousy will absolutely ruin our horizontal relationships with one another. Right, because you, you know this, it is, it is impossible to genuinely love and serve and care about someone that you're jealous of. Right? If, if we're gonna be a church full of people who are marked by man, gratitude and trust and all of these different things in the Lord, it will be because we aren't a church and aren't people who are constantly competing and comparing ourselves to other people, but we're people who celebrate God's work in other people's lives. Right? We should be, it, it should be our goal to try and be more excited about what God is doing in someone else's life than what he's doing and giving us. Right? And when we do that, when we when we trade competing and comparison, man, for celebration and excitement about what God is doing in the lives of our brothers and sisters, man, praying for them, encouraging them, celebrating, like weeping with them when they're weeping, but man, rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, which is so much harder, right? When we do that, our jealousy will turn to joy and gratitude, man, and entitlement will start to fall away and it will lose its grip. So that's kind of the first like symptom of an entitled spirit that we see in this passage is jealousy. The second is grumbling. Second is grumbling, right? You saw that the 12-hour workers, right, grumbled at the master of the house because uh, they thought he was withholding something that they deserved, right? And we all have done that or, or do that or believe that uh, in our relationship with God. Um, I love to cook. It's kind of quirky, you know, whatever. But it's fun. I like it. Um, it's relaxing. I know that's crazy to some people. My wife's like, you're crazy. Um, but anyway, I do. And so a couple weeks ago, um, I was making spaghetti. Um, and when I say I was making spaghetti, I mean that I was making spaghetti. So no disrespect to like the ragu fans out there, but I was not just dumping ragu into some cooked noodles. Like I was making spaghetti, right? So like crushed tomatoes and tomato paste and garlic and fresh basil, you know, all, all, all the works. Um, it sounds good. I know it's, we're getting close to lunchtime. Um, and so anyway, I like get to the end of it and the spaghetti's made and it's, you know, I'm excited, I'm hungry, I'm ready to eat. So I go over to the cabinet um, and my wife had gotten these cool little like plates bowl type things. I don't really know if there's a word to call them, but that's what I call them. And so they were up in the cabinet. So I reach up to try to get them out so that we could eat. And as I'm reaching up, the shelf in our cabinet breaks and half of our dishes come crashing out of the cabinet and, you know, smashed into oblivion everywhere. And so, you know, our cool plate bowls are now broken um, and the kids are running around on the glass covered floor. And man, the, 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 if that weren't enough, like th this cabinet just conveniently happened to be located directly to the right of the stove, meaning that as everything came down, crashed, smashed everywhere, my, you know, yummy spaghetti was now seasoned with glass, you know? And so suffice it to say, I was a little bit frustrated, all right? I'm not gonna repeat the specific words of grumbling that came out of my mouth in that moment, but, but it, it wasn't... I, 
I, I didn't just become grumbled or frustrated because I had to throw out the spaghetti. I, I became a little bit grumbled or frustrated, man, towards God. Like, God, why, why can't we have a nicer house than this janky townhouse with jacked up cabinets and shelves? You know, like after all, like I'm in ministry, you know, like I'm preparing to preach in a couple weeks. I'm, I'm doing your work and doing these different things. Like I, I feel like I deserve better, you know? Like why are you withholding good things for me after all of the things that I'm doing for you? Right, I, I looked at what I had done and grumbled towards God because I thought I was more deserving than what my circumstances uh, kind of said that, that I was. And if we're honest, man, it's so easy to do that. It's so easy for all of us to grumble at God for withholding things that we deserve. And when we do that, man, we show that we've taken on a spirit of entitlement. And the reality is, man, like we saw with jealousy, ruin horizontal, man, this type of spirit and mindset and view of God will absolutely suck the joy out of everything and ruin our relationship with him. Why? Because the bad things that happen or, you know, the the difficult circumstances or whatever, you know, are just frustrating. There's no meaning or purpose to them. And even the good things, all the blessings that we get, the things that we see in our lives are just things that we had coming to us anyway, because, you know, we're acting like God's repaying us according to, you know, what we've done. So entitlement will suck the joy out of everything and ruin our relationship. So the question we need to ask is, what is it for you? Like, what do you feel like God owes you this morning? For some of you, it's success. You know, you just feel like based on what you've been doing, how you've been living your life, like things just should be going better for you than they are right now. For others of you, it, it's recognition. You just, you just feel like based on how you've been living your life or whatever, you know, you should be getting praise or people should be seeing you or recognizing you or praising you more than they are. For some of you, it's a relationship or, or a spouse or a child or a new job or a promotion or a house or whatever, right? The list can go on and on and on. We're all prone to drift into entitlement, grumbling, jealousy, like living like God owes us things based on who we are or what we've done. And the, the key, the thing that we have to, to understand and remember, right, to move from entitlement to gratitude the thing we have to do to make that turn is be gripped and be gripped by the grace and generosity of our God, right? Day after day when our hands are full, when our hands are empty and we have to look to the cross and, and ask God to help us say and remember that Jesus is enough, that no matter what I have, Jesus is enough for me. Because the truth is, Jesus is the truer and better 12-hour worker, right? He lived a life of complete and total dependence and trust on the Father. He was, he was marked by trust and thankfulness his entire life, right? And, and because of that, he, he's the only one who is ever truly deserving, like truly deserving of blessing. Jesus Christ is the only person who's ever lived and been entitled, truly entitled to glory, honor, and blessing forever. But instead of getting that, instead of getting what he deserved in great grace, Jesus Christ took what you and I deserved, right? Instead of the reward of righteousness that he was due, Jesus took the wrath that you and I were due. In Christ, man, instead of receiving wrath, we've received mercy and extravagant grace. And because of that, like because, because that is true, we can trust and be thankful no matter what we're walking through. 
because we've been reconciled to the God of heaven and earth. And no matter what we have or don't have, we can say Jesus is enough for me. We can say with Paul in Romans 11, oh, the depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Which is essentially, it's, it's a rhetorical, rhetorical question to say, who has ever been owed good things from God? To which the answer is no. God, we don't, you don't owe us anything based on how we've treated you, but because of what you've done for us, we owe you everything. And that's what he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever and ever. May God make us a church that when our hands are full, our hands are empty, and we don't walk through life trying to compete and, and, and earn and deserve, but we just trust because Jesus is enough for us. We trust him and we love and we serve him for all of our days. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would make that true of us. God, we thank you for who you are and what we've done or what you've done. We aren't deserving, you are. God, you owe us nothing, but we owe you everything. And as we move into 2024, God, we ask as a church that you would just grant us gratitude, that you would give us hearts, man, that have joy just in who you are, not walk through life with, man, looking at things from glass half full, just happy-go-lucky people, but people who are marked by, man, gritty gratitude because you're enough for us. Help us to say that and believe that and live like it. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we pray all those things in your name, amen. In response to these things, let's stand and sing together.